We're about one thing here. We're about making and mobilizing disciples. And if you're here, I want you to know that. If you're new, I want you to know that. Uh, everything that we do, whether it's this environment you're in right now, or maybe we'll talk later about our community groups, or maybe you dropped your kids off in our kids' ministry. And I want you to know that every environment we view just as a vehicle to help us make and mobilize disciples. In fact, we're always asking that question. We're asking, are community groups making more and better disciples? Is kids' ministry making more and better disciples? And if you could come to me and you could show me without a doubt, Pastor Kyle, you'd say, hey, I wanna just show you that our community groups are not making or mobilizing disciples and we would get rid of them. We'd have to do something else because community groups isn't the goal, it's to make and mobilize disciples, but not just make and mobilize disciples. We wanna do that in a certain environment or a certain atmosphere. Here's how we say it here. We wanna make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. That's how we want it to feel. And not just here, I mean that in your home. I, I want when you put your kids to bed at night for there to be an environment of prayer and worship. Now, how do we want to instill that, okay? Part of it is our nights of prayer and worship. And so I wanted to tell you that tomorrow night, I want you to come back. Because we did one of these in March and it was so significant, it was so special. Dare I say, I've been here the whole time, all seven years of this church, and it is one of the most significant nights was back in March. In fact, we added this one. And this is a flywheel and a fireplace of prayer and worship. Here's what we're gonna be doing. Donovan and his team are gonna be up here leading us in some of our favorite songs. And then we're gonna be uniquely, every, every prayer night's gonna be different. We're gonna do a couple of these this year. This time we're gonna be praying for unique ages and stages in our church. So we're gonna pray for single moms and we're gonna pray for young couples and we're gonna pray for kids and we're gonna pray for middle schoolers and we're gonna pray for college students. We're gonna pray for empty nesters and anybody else that I forgot. So I want you to come out. And by the way, as I talk about ages and stages and groups of people in the church that we love, happy Mother's Day to everybody. If you're just finding out it's Mother's Day, you're in trouble, okay? I'm sorry, you're in big trouble. No, we love mom. I love my mom. I love the mom of my, to my three kids. Uh, you know, and Abe Lincoln said, no one grew up poor who had a godly mom. And here's what we know. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, but mom is the heart of the church. And when we talk about prayer, who has led the church in prayer for the last 2,000 years? Mom. So we just want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the moms. But here's what else we know, and you know this. I know this as a person, I know this as a pastor, that Mother's Day, for many people, it's super joyful. For other people, it's very hard. Sometimes for single women, it's hard as they're getting older and they want to be mom, but to be mom, they want to get married and they're not married, so they can't be mom. And they're reminded on Mother's Day how far they are from being mom. There's other people who they're married and they wanna be mom, but they can't get pregnant. They can't stay pregnant. For other people, it's Mother's Day. This Mother's Day is a reminder that mom is not here. It's the first Mother's Day without mom or one of the first without mom. Or for some, sadly, they've lost a child. And Mother's Day is a reminder of who's not here. If that's you, here's what we wanna say. This is what the Bible teaches. Where the ideal is lacking, grace is abounding. And we don't want you to view your future apart from the grace of God. So we're gonna pray for mom and those who want to be mom. And then we're gonna dive into Ephesians 2. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful. I'm grateful for my mom. I'm grateful for Margie, who's the mom to our three kids, Lord, we are just so grateful for the way that mom takes a house and makes it a home. We're thankful for the deep investment mom makes in each of us, especially when we're so young. And I wanna pray for particularly all the women in this room right now who are grieving internally. I've talked to women before who they don't like to come to church on Mother's Day because it's a reminder of something that's missing or lacking in their life. And so we pray for, for women who desire to be married, Lord, that you would lead them in that direction, Lord. We pray for women who desire to be moms, 
that you would give them the desire of their hearts. It's such a good desire to want to be a mom and to want to raise godly kids, Lord. For any of those today who are just grieving because it's Mother's Day and they don't have their mom here or they don't have their son or daughter here, we pray a special grace on them, Lord, that all of us would not look to the future apart from the grace of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know what it's like to feel excluded or not invited. This may sound silly to you, but to me, I still, when I talk about it, it still bothers me a little bit. I didn't make the seventh grade basketball team. And I can still see seventh grade me going home, and I'm embarrassed to tell you this because I was in middle school, but I went home and I cried. And I played pool by myself. <laughs> I remember my dad came down to talk to me, and I just remember feeling like, oh, no, I've got to go tomorrow, and I've got to go face all my friends who made the team, and I've got to be the person who wasn't good enough to make the seventh grade basketball team. We all experience this. Yeah, the first time you probably experience it is when you're not invited to a kid's birthday party. Anyone remember that? It's like, you're like, why wasn't I invited? And your mom has to sit you down and go, well, Timmy uh, only could bring 10 people to Chuck E. Cheese, okay? <laughs> it's expensive. Now, some of us, it, we get older and all of a sudden we're not invited to be the part of the wedding party. Or if you're a guy, you're asked to be an usher and not a groomsman. It's like, hey, you're not one of my five good friends. You're right after that. For others, we can't get into a certain college and that's a wake-up call, or we don't get the job that we interviewed for, and we all know what it's like to be excluded. Well, Paul's gonna talk about it today. If you'll type two, turn to Ephesians 2. We'll be in verses 11 to 22. This is the part of Ephesians no one talks about. When I say Ephesians 2, you're like, I love that passage. And what you mean is you, you love the first 10 verses. You love the saved by grace. Uh, you love the your God's poema, his workmanship. We talked about it last week. Uh, but here's what Paul's going to tell us in this passage. He's going to tell us that those who have been excluded in the past are included in the present. He's telling us that those who were on the outside can now be on the inside. Those who were considered losers can now be winners. He's going to talk about the church. And this is hard for us because uh, we, when we think we're Americans, we're Westerners, we think about the individual, right? You think about your individual personal relationship with Jesus. You think about your personal devotional life. You think about your personal walk with the Lord. Well, today, Paul's gonna move from me to we, and I think this is why we don't know this passage as well, because it's not as much about you as it's about us. And Paul's going to tell us, here's the big idea, okay? So for you to follow this passage, because it's deep. I'm realizing Ephesians is really deep, and there's a lot we're gonna cover uh, this morning. But there's three parts to what we're going to look at, so I'm going to kind of tell you before I show you. Uh, first, we're going to see that everybody is separated from God and, and from one another. In fact, the, the, the way that he talks about it last week, Paul talks about us being enemies. This week, he talks about us being aliens. That's a good way to think about it. And, and, but he's going to go from you were separated, that's going to be the first few verses we'll look at, to, okay, you've been reconciled. In fact, he's going to talk about what's called a double reconciliation. I know, big words. Double reconciliation because there was a double alienation. You were alienated from God and you were alienated from others and Christ brings us together with God and with one another. But then, and we'll see this at the very end, it's not just alienated uh, to reconciled, it's this interesting unification. You go, what does that mean? Well, we'll see in about 30 or 40 minutes. But turn with me to verse 11, I wanna show you this. Look at me at verse 11, here's what it says. Therefore, so, you know, whenever you see a therefore, you say, what is it there for? It's connecting uh, everything that was just said about the individual. Now he's moving from, again, from me to we. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember, we'll come back to that. He's going to tell him twice to remember. That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called, look at this, called the uncircumcision. You're like, Kyle, I'm not another sermon on circumcision. I know, I won't be, I won't be. By what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands. I need to talk to you a little bit about who the Ephesians were. And I, I did this in the first week, but I didn't talk about this part, and I need to talk about this part. Uh, the Ephesians were Gentiles, and that may not be important to you, and you're like, well, who cares? And it's actually very important because actually all that Paul did and every church that he planted was, it was mostly made up of Gentiles. I told you before, he'd go to the synagogue, but very few Jews would believe, and then he'd go to the marketplace. And what he ended up finding out is that almost all of his churches were almost completely made out of Gentiles. So the church at Ephesus, or the Ephesian church, is a Gentile church. Now, here's what the Jews did, and this is what you do, and this is what I do if we're not sophisticated. This is our natural state. We break the world up into a very simple black and white, right? This is how people tend to break the world up. There, there's us, and, and then there's them. I mean, that's how you break the world up, especially before you're sophisticated. So that's what the Jews did. The Jew, for the Jews, it was the Jews, and then, you know what Gentiles means? Nations. So here's how the Jews broke up the world. Us, we're the good people and Gentiles, everybody else. In fact, it's hard for me, I'm gonna try. It's hard for me to explain to you how much the Jews hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews. Like I know, we'll get into it. I know there's some animosity and there's enmity and there's hostility in our nation. And I know there are groups of people in our nation who hate each other. We can talk about that, we might. But I can tell you for sure, nobody hated each other as much as the Jews hated the Gentiles. We might, maybe as much in our nation, but certainly not more. I'll tell you, here's what happened. So here's what the, uh, the Jews would say. If, uh, well, first of all, the Jews said, do you know why God made the Gentiles? To keep hell hot. How much do you gotta hate someone to say something like that? You know, the Jews, they would say, hey, listen, if you see a Gentile woman and she is in dire need and she is giving birth, do not help her. Because all you would do is bring another Gentile into the world. If for some reason, and this rarely happened, but if for some reason some Jewish boy falls in love with some Gentile girl and he decides against his parents' wishes to marry this Gentile girl, the same day of the wedding would be the day of his funeral. You can see in the passage how much they hate the, uh, the Gentiles. Look, look at what the passage says. Look at the verse 11. See, they call them the uncircumcision. You know what that is? That's a derogatory and demeaning nickname. Do you know that you only name two people? You name people you love and you name people you hate. I don't wanna know your nickname for your spouse, okay? But we tend to have nicknames for our spouse, honey. I mean, my parents grew up, they called each other Chuppy, but it was, <laughs> they were both fairly fit, but Chuppy was their nickname for each other. My dad, I grew up, my dad called me Butch. I don't know why. I call my kids buddy. We, we nickname people we love. Guess who else you had nicknamed? People that you hate. You have a nickname for that annoying boss or that crazy coworker or that silly classmate. And whether you love him or you hate him, no one has been more powerful in using nicknames than Donald Trump. Crooked Hillary, sleepy Joe Biden. He has these nicknames and they stick and they define a person. What's sad is when races are angry at each other, when ethnicities are angry at each other, the demeaning names that they use for one another are so horrible they should never be spoken. Here's what I want you to know. This is all in verse 11. The natural state of humanity is, host uh, is hostility. I want you to be amazed that there's ever peace. <laughs> it's really an achievement. We'll get into that later too. But I mean, just think about it, right? Think about the history of the world. How about World War II? Okay, you had the Nazis hating the Jews. Right now, Ukraine and Russia. 
I was in Israel uh, back in November, and uh, everybody hates everybody there. The Jews hate the Arabs. The Arabs don't like the Muslims. The Muslims don't like the Armenians. They have different sides of the city. I had a great, I mean, he was a Messianic Jew, was my tour guide. Guy in his 70s, great guy, godly guy. He could not help but put the Arabs down. We'd be driving, he'd be like all, he'd be like 90% normal and then he'd see Arabs and he'd have to say something negative about them. He'd be like, I oh, see this, you'll see it's an Arab village because it's dirty. He just couldn't help himself. A couple years ago, I was golfing in Ireland and uh, we had this great driver, he's about my age. And uh, he would take us to this golf course and then that golf course. And if you know anything about Ireland and how the Protestants hate the Catholics and the Catholics hate the Protestants and the North hates the South and all this, he takes us to this golf course one time. He drops us off and I, we've been hanging out with him for a couple days. And I'm looking at a guy my age and he's visibly scared. And he says, guys, I can't stay here. I'll pick you up in six hours. It's too dangerous for me to be here. The history of our nation is, we don't have time to go into it in great detail, is a, is a, is a there's a lot of great things to say about our nation, but there's been hostility, animosity, enmity. There's been racism. First it showed up in slavery and then in segregation and then in Jim Crow. There's been, not just that, there's classism, which it doesn't mean we, classism doesn't mean the rich hate the poor and the poor hate the rich. It more means they never see each other. They send their kids to different schools and they don't interact with each other and they shop at different grocery stores and they live in different parts of the city. And then there's tribalism, right? Tribalism is defined by the political parties and the ideologies and the news we choose and the silos on our social media. And, and so what I want us to see today is this is gonna be really practical for us. We're gonna see how God through Christ brings people together. Let's go back, we'll look at verse 11 and verse 12 one more time together. If you look at me here, here's what it says. Let's go back to verse 11 to see it together. He says this, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that's the nickname, by what is called the circumcision, that was the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Look at verse 12. Remember, second time he tells us to remember, that you were at that time, and he's gonna tell us five things of our condition before Christ. Remember last week in the beginning of chapter two, he tells us about our condition before Christ. We always need the bad news before the good news. Here's what he says. Therefore, remember, or rem verse 12, remember that it, you were at that time, here it is, five things. First, separated from Christ. Second, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Fourth, having no hope. Fifth, and without God in the world. Okay, he wants to remind us, and I think it just needs to be said. He wants to remind us of what our life was like before Christ. I want you to know this, and I feel like I need to say this, that not everybody, or, or sorry, not just everybody, nobody is born a believer. No one comes into the world as a Christian. Normally I can tell if I'm talking to somebody who's religiously lost, they're not really a Christian, they're in church, but they're not in Christ. When I tell them I became a Christian at 16 and they look confused. As my friend said, uh, growing up in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than growing up in a garage would make you a car, okay? <laughs> Everybody has a moment, it might be at six, it may be at 16, it may be at 60, where they cross the line, they realize I was separated and now I'm reconciled to God. Now, if you're six, that's harder to, you, you wrestle. If you grew up in a Christian home, you go, I don't, I don't feel this as much, but even though that was reality. For me at 16, I can see what the first 15 years of my life were like. And if you ever meet somebody who comes to faith in Christ at 30 or 40 or 50, they will tell you this was their past. So what I wanna do is I wanna unpack all five of these briefly for us. 
The first thing we're told is they are without Christ. Do you see that? Verse 12 says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Now, we know this, but Jesus Christ came into the world through the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And he's saying you were cut off from Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Savior. Here's what it means. And, and I want us, by the way, when we look at this, to not just think of ourselves before we knew Christ. I want us to think of this is the condition of people today in our city and in our nation apart from the gospel. First, they have no Savior. Now, what does this mean? This means they're finding or trying to find someone else or something else to save them. One of the things that I really want to do up here in my teaching and preaching ministry is to help us not to think that, for example, that Christians have a Savior and the world doesn't have a Savior. The world is always looking for something to save them. Here's how it works. Let me tell you how it functionally works. This will make sense in a second. Uh, everybody creates a functional hell and then a functional heaven. And then they find something that will bring them out of their functional hell into their functional heaven. It's called their Savior, and they worship it. Every person does this all the time. So imagine that your functional hell is being single. You don't want to be single. You don't want to be lonely. You don't want to whatever. So what is your functional heaven? Marriage or a deep romantic relationship. So what do what is your savior? That boyfriend or girlfriend that comes into your life. Have you ever met somebody who hasn't had a romantic relationship in a long time and, that, and then someone comes into their life and they are, the only word you could really have is they are obsessed. You actually need to, this happens every once in a while, you need to grab theological language to describe what's happening. This is a worship issue with this person. Have you ever wondered why are people so obsessed with fitness and eating healthy and exercising and CrossFit and all of that stuff? Well, for some people, it's just a hobby, but for some people, their functional hell is to be out of shape and overweight and unhealthy. And their functional heaven is, I don't know, to have a beach body. And so what is their savior? Whatever gets them there, an eating plan or an exercise plan. Why are people so obsessed with their jobs and their career and their education? And again, sometimes you, you just go, I need almost theological language for this. It's because their functional hell is to be poor or to be insignificant. And so they will worship the job that is their savior to get them to their functional heaven of financial freedom. The first thing we're told about them is the worst thing we're told about unbelievers is that they have, they do not understand Jesus Christ as their savior. Second, we're told they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That means they have no Christian community. I don't know if you saw this. About a week or two ago, the Surgeon General of the United States of America came out and said, we have a crisis and an epidemic in our country of loneliness. I mean, it's a pretty big deal when the Surgeon General says, this is big enough, I'm going to write a report and make a statement. I'm concerned about this crisis. People are lonely. You have no idea how lonely certain people are. I know some of you go, I, 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 I've never met a lonely person. You wouldn't because they're lonely. They're not here. They're in their mother's basement. They're playing video games all day. They're angry at the world. We're told the amount of people that live by themselves, and it's not wrong to live by yourself, but we're, fine, we're told that the, the number of people that live by themselves has doubled in the last 20 years. So people are lonely. 
But here's what you're trying to do when you're trying to find community. And part of what I want to do is try to articulate things. When you're trying to find community, when you're trying to find friendship, here's what you're looking for. And we don't always articulate this, but this is what you are looking for. You're looking for something bigger to bring you together. C.S. Lewis, he famously said, you know the guy who wrote Narnia, he famously said that all true friendship starts when one person says to the other, you too? I thought I was the only one. You get that? What happens in friendship, what happens in true community is there's something bigger that's bringing us together. It might be we both love a certain sports team. It could be a bunch of different things. We're looking for something bigger. We could both love music. We both love video games. We both love music or movies. Something bigger is bringing us together. What we need is actually a community with something much bigger than any of us, God, that brings us together. The reason, and there's lots of reasons, marriage fails, marriage fails, marriages fail, sorry. And one of the reasons, though, is that if I'm trying to find everything in you and you're trying to find everything in me, we need something bigger that we're both trying to find something in. So the first thing we're told is they have no Christ. The second thing they have is they have no community. Now, they're looking for it in CrossFit and other groups and even in causes. Why is there such an obsession with causes in our nation? Because it's something bigger that brings people together. Third, we're told they are strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, this is very interesting to note. We're told the first thing, the most important thing is, well, they don't know Christ. But then we're told the two things that God uses to bring people to Christ are mentioned next. You see that? It's the people of God and the word of God. The covenants of promise is shorthand for the word of God. Here's a way to think about it. Um, whenever I'm, and this happens often, whenever I'm talking to somebody and they're like, you know, my son is in college and he's not a believer or my daughter's living in New York City and she's not a believer and what should we do and how should we pray? I don't have a real clear plan, but my, my answer is always the same. We should, we should be praying for two things, that somehow the people of God get around her and the word of God gets in her. So send her another book that might have the word of God in it and, and send her a song and send her a movie about the word of God, send whatever. And let's pray that God sends laborers into her life and let's pray that they plant a great church near her and someone invites her. Because we're told that they are strangers of the covenants of promise. Now, why use that phrase? It's shorthand for the word of God, but why covenants? Well, covenant, I won't get into all this, but covenant is the larger story of the whole Bible. I mean, that's a good way to think about the Bible. You can think promise, basically. Promise made, promise fulfilled. Um, what's interesting is we live in what's called post-modernity or who knows, post-modernity, post it doesn't really matter. That's what people say. And they've tried to define like, what is the water we're swimming in and what defines post-modernity? This is very interesting. They say what defines post-modernity is the collapse of the meta-narrative. See, what the Bible gives you is a meta-narrative. It gives you a bigger story that you're a part of. Think about the average person. I don't know if you are the average person, but let me tell you, the average person in our nation, their family is fractured. Through divorce, through transient living, people don't know their grandparents, they don't know the story of their family, so there's no meta-narrative for their family. And then how about with our nation? We're having a big debate on what's the story of our nation and patriotism is low, especially among young people a lot of times. And so there's no story of our nation. And then there's no religious affiliation. And so, you know, people aren't going to church. So there's no theological story. So think about this. The average person is, has no greater story that their life's connected to. So they're all about self-expression and self-awareness and self-fulfillment which leads to the fourth thing we're told. The, 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 in some ways, the saddest conclusion is that they have no hope. They're nihilistic. Now, I didn't know this, but at the time this was written, the Roman Empire was as nihilistic as it had ever been. See, I always thought the Roman Empire was up and to the right until it wasn't. But this was a very dark time in the Roman Empire. This was a time where people were writing things like, uh, 
It's better to never have been born than to be born. It's better to die young than to live and see much trouble. We live at a time right now, it's very nihilistic. I don't know if you've heard of this, but uh, there's a phrase called deaths of despair, and they're increasing in our nation. Deaths of despair, of course, is suicide. But it's all types of deaths that are connected to having no hope. It's opioid abuse. It's drug overdose. It's reckless behavior. And here's why. So uh, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old shows up on a college campus, and this is basically what they're taught. Hey, I want to just teach you a couple things. Welcome to uh, class. Welcome to the university. Let me teach you this. You came from nobody, and you are here for no purpose, and when you die, you go nowhere. Do you understand how people could say, well, then when it's too painful, I'm going to end it? They were separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to the covenants of promise, therefore having no hope, and then he just summarizes it again, and without God. He starts and ends with with, they don't have God. And then the big transition happens, just like it happened earlier in the chapter. I want you to see this. If you'll turn with me to verse 13, it says this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So if you remember, in verse 4, we had, we had all this bad news, one, verses 1 through 3, and then we got a, but God. And now we got all this bad news in the first two verses here, and then we get a but now. There are some big buts in the Bible, and I cannot lie, okay? <laughs> and this is one of them. I want you to know this. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to have a but now Christianity in your life. I want you to have a but now marriage. We're going to talk about this but in a little bit, I think. But where the reason reconciliation is so hard is the past. It's that in your marriage, there's been 10,000 paper cuts over the last two decades. And I'm saying, what would it look like for both of you to say, but now? By the grace of God, because of what Christ has done. Some of you need a but now family. You're isolated, you're living your separate lives, and sometimes you just gotta repent. You go, we wasted five years, I'm so sorry. And usually dad's gotta get up and go, I, it's my fault, but now. Some of you need to have a but now, new self-image. You're gonna view yourself completely different because of what Christ has done. Now, here's what we're told here. We're told two realities are now true. I wanna break these up each, uh, take a little time. First is that we're near to God. Do you see this? It says, but now, because of Christ, we are brought near to God. And I just, in Winston-Salem, in the Southeast, in 2023, I feel like I've got to just say, you don't bring yourself near to God. God in Christ brings you near to him. I don't know if we think, this is how they used to think. I'm like, I don't know, because when I say this anymore, I'm like, I don't think people still think this anymore, but people used to think for a long time that their religious activity and their religious performance and their moral effort brought them to God. I've told you before, I'm a recovering Catholic, and I can remember I'm in eighth grade, and I'm about as unsaved as you possibly could be. And I'm sitting in a confirmation class in eighth grade in Catholic church, and we had to go through this whole process, and I can't remember every detail of it. But I remember the bishop, it's a big deal, because bishop comes in town. And the bishop's in town, and he's speaking to us, and at the end of confirmation, he says, guys, congrats, you got the Holy Spirit.
I didn't feel like I had the Holy Spirit, and I didn't. There's an old way of thinking that we do certain rituals and routines and uh, certain rhythms in our life, and that brings us near to God. What we're told is actually God brings us near to himself. Now, this is interesting. I thought about this for a while. I don't know what you think. I don't know if people want to be near God. I mean, that is good news if you understand the gospel, but imagine going to the center of Wake's campus or going to the center of downtown or I don't know, going anywhere. And say you, and, and you just went out to talk to people and you didn't have an agenda. And this isn't drive-by evangelism. And you genuinely care and are concerned about these people. And you just ask them, do you want to be close to God? I don't know what they're going to say. I mean, that, you might find somebody, yes, can you tell me how? I think you're going to get a lot of nice no's or not really. Or I've never thought about that. And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, most people don't understand God rightly. And they think, well, why would, here's what they think. God doesn't want, want to be near to me. And we don't want to be near somebody who doesn't want to be near us. What you need to hear by the grace of God is God wants to be near you. Now, that may hurt your head. If you're thinking theologically, you go, well, how's that possible? Isn't God near everybody? Yes, well, here's what this is talking about. This is talking about a relational nearness, not a physical nearness. Every married couple knows it is possible to be sitting on the couch physically right next to each other and be physically very close, but be relationally very distant. What we're told is because of what Christ has done, we can now be relationally close to God. It's not like we get more of God's presence in the sense that God's omnipresent. So you're like, well, isn't he near everybody? Yes, but there's also what's called the manifest or felt presence of God. There's also what's called the indwelling presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. First thing we're told is that God wants to be near you and he will bring you near because of Christ, and that is a relational nearness. But there's a second thing we're told that's also very important, and it's that Christ gives us peace. I want you to see this. Look at verse 14. The word peace here is going to show up four times in this passage. I want you to see this. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. We'll come back and talk about that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So here it is again. So making peace. So he is peace and he makes peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, third time it's used, to you who are far off, and peace, fourth time it's used, to those who are near. So what is peace? I've told you before, these are hard words to define. That's why Jesus told stories. Well, let me try to define the word peace. Uh, peace, there's really two dimensions when you think about peace. There's an internal and an external dimension, okay? And they're both important, and Christ can accomplish both for us. The internal peace is the lack of worry or the lack of concern or the lack of anxiety internally because or in spite of things not going well around you externally. That's a certain type of peace. By the way, we're told that Jesus is our peace. And whenever I say that, right, all the Christians in the room make this listening noise. Like I say, peace is a person. Everyone's like, mm-hmm, that's good. Peace is a person. But we don't really know what that means. How is peace a person? Here's the best way I can think about this. If you've ever had a young child in your home, and when a child is somewhere between the ages of maybe two, three, up to six or seven years old, their mom is peace for them. I'm assuming a good relationship with mom, between mom and child. But if that relationship is strong, then for that child to be near their mom and to be around their mom and to see their mom and to be close to their mom is the same thing as peace. 
This is why right around two or three years old, some kids start to have separation anxiety, right? It's very interesting. Separation anxiety happens at the exact same time that object permanence happens in, a, in your development. So as soon as you realize something can be there and then leave and not come back, that's when you get separation anxiety. And it's usually from mom, right? Dad can leave for work and the kid's like, bye, <laughs> you know? <laughs> mom can't go to the bathroom. There is a relational piece. We can basically say, I know Jesus Christ and to be in a relationship with him and to know, even though I don't know what the future holds, I know who holds the future. He's handled my greatest problems already, the wrath of God and my need for forgiveness. He's going to handle every other problem. There's an internal piece. That's the lack of worry internally, lack of anxiety internally, even and especially when everything's not going right externally. But there's a second type of piece and that's the peace with one another and that's, 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 the, that's really talked about in the word harmony is probably, or the Old Testament word shalom. So there was a family uh, at my old church, and we'll call them the Valentes, because that was their name, okay? Um, and they, they were a great family. They had set, they were like a biblical family. They had seven kids, six daughters. I know. Um, <laughs> separate wedding fund for sure. Um, and, uh, but we would go, my wife and I, we would go over their house, and every time I went there, it was like going to the Garden of Eden. You just walked in, and some of you have been in houses like this. Maybe you have a house like this, and you're just like, you walk in, and there's peace. And it's like, dad is trying to serve and sacrifice and lay his life down for his wife, and she's trying in response to love and respect and submit to him, and the kids aren't perfect, but they love mom and dad, and they love each other, and they're trying to obey their parents, and the parents are trying not to exacerbate or be overbearing with the kids, and it's, it's just like the Garden of Eden. And that happens when you are all looking at the same thing and have the same priorities. That's how harmony happens. There's internal peace. There's external peace. Now, look what it says here. He is our peace. We talked about that. That's the image of a three-year-old with her mom. But then he makes peace. This is helpful to know. I mean, it's just obvious, but we need to say this. Um, peace does not happen naturally. Peace does not happen normally. Peace does not, even though we all wish it was true, peace does not happen by avoiding something. Some of us think, well, we'll just never have that conversation with our spouse. It's like, wrong. Peace only happens, this is what the Bible teaches us. This is why I love the honesty of the Bible. Peace only happens when you deal with the problem. Some of you have not dealt with the problem in your marriage. You know this because one or both of you are relational archeologists. Well, back in 1995, we were at my mother's house and you yelled at me. Relational archeologist. Really what it's telling me is, or telling you or telling us is the problem has not been dealt with. We're told that Jesus Christ killed the hostility by being killed. In fact, if you look back at the verse, it says that there was a dividing wall of hostility. Now, what is that? Well, that's three things, actually. There was a literal wall, and I, I told you earlier, when I was in Israel, I got to go to what remains of the temple, and it's a big structure, and there's many walls, and there's many courts, and there was something called the court of the Gentiles, and there was a wall that divided the Jews from the Gentiles, and they basically gave the Gentiles the nosebleed seats the worst seats on the way outside. And there was, they actually have this plaque uh, in a museum, I believe in Turkey. There was a plaque on the wall that literally said, basically, 
if any Gentile climbs over or crosses this wall, he or she will be responsible for their own death. We're told here that Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. What that is, is it's religion. So there's religious bears. Religion, I've tried to tell you, is very different than Christianity. Religion basically says there's good people and there's bad people, and the good people are in here and the bad people are out there. And religion is always has a territorial spirit about it. It wants to keep certain people out and only let other people in. The second wall, there was a literal wall that's, that, that he's referencing. There was also, you can see there, he says, broke down the law commandments with its ordinances. This is uh, the ceremonial law. So what separates people? Well, religion, so he breaks that down. Then culture. What, what, what is culture? Well, that's hard to define. But, but, but uh, you know, a large part of culture is language. But after language, it's food and fashion. It's diet and dress. And he's going to begin to remove those barriers as well. And the third are the social and political walls. And that's the hardest in some ways, because what that is, is that's everything that everybody's done to each other in the past, and that's what makes reconciliation so difficult. Because we have to pull it up, and we have to be able to talk about it. Like, if you want real peace in your marriage, it's like, you may have to fight for two months every night about everything you've ever avoided in your marriage. But wouldn't that be worth it to have 20 years of peace or 30 years of peace on the other side? And you know where to put it because of what Christ has done? Look what it says Christ did here. If you go back to the passage, we're told something very interesting. We're to, the word one, I'm always looking in, in the Bible, and you should be too. What, what's repeated? Do you see there it says that he might make us, in verse 14, one. In verse 15, one new man. I think it's in verse 16 or 17, one new body or a, one body, so there's one, one new man, one body. Here's what happens, here's, here's the unification. Remember I told you there was separation, there was reconciliation, now there's unification. Paul uses this interesting phrase, he says, I'm gonna make you one. Now here's what's interesting, and this is the question that you and I have never asked before, but here, here was a big question. In fact, this question was such a big question that in Acts 15, the first council of the church is about this question. Here's the question that they were worried about but you've never thought about. Does a Gentile need to become a Jew to become a Christian? Like, I've ne that's never kept me up. <laughs> Does a Gentile need to become a Jew to become a Christian? That was the question. And that's the whole, all the debates of, do you need to be circumcised and all that kind of stuff, okay? Here's what Paul's telling us. He's saying that when a Gentile becomes a Christian, he doesn't become a Jew. And he's telling us that when a Jew becomes a Christian, he doesn't become a Gentile. They become something completely new. That word new there, so it says one new man, there's two, I don't do this a lot, but this is important. I'm gonna take you into the Greek for a second, the original language. There's two words in the Greek for new. There's nuos and kainos. Now, nuos means new in relation to time. It basically means updated and renovated. And if, you like, if you're like, I want the new iPhone, you're talking about nuos. It's like, it has a little bit better camera. It's a little faster, right? If you're like, I want the new Ford Explorer, what you mean is, okay, the grill's a little different, and they changed the seats a little bit, and it's got Apple AirPlay. It's new in relation to time. That's not the word Paul uses. That would be a great word, and that would mean something, and that would basically mean I, I took Jews and Gentiles, and I kind of updated both. He uses the word kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. It's new in relation to kind. 
it means we didn't beforehand even have a category for this. It's like when Henry Ford said, if people asked me, if, or if I asked people, what do you want? They would have told me they wanted a faster horse. Instead, I gave them a car. That's new in kind. It's all, oh, man, isn't it amazing how, the, isn't the railroad you know, system and traveling across the country in a train, isn't that amazing? It was until the Wright brothers came. And we now have the airplane. That's new in kind. Right now, we're having a conversation as a nation of what is AI? Artificial intelligence. It's new in kind. What Paul's telling us is when you come to Christ, what God is building is a new humanity, a new society, a completely new species. And he ends by giving us three communal or group identities in verses 18 to 22. Let's look really quickly there. In verses 18 to 22, I want you to see this. For, the, for through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, there's the oneness again, to the Father. So then you are no longer, okay, that was the past. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Here it is, three identities. First, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Second, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into third, a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, uh, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, I, I told you this at the beginning, but we tend to view our identity as Christians individual. We're like, God's my shepherd and I'm his sheep. It's like partially true. You're a sheep, but you're part of a bigger flock. Oh God, isn't it awesome? God's my father and I'm his son or daughter. Yeah, true, but you're part of a family. Here we're given three final group identities. And that's very interesting because we're having a conversation in our nation right now about group identity. You wanna have the right group identity. You don't want your group identity to be your suffering. You, want, you don't want your group identity to be some ideology you have. God, through Paul, gives us three group identities very quickly. Kingdom, family, temple. Do you see that? He's telling us that we're citizens. This is important for us to know. Look, I am like very patriotic. The older I get, the more patriotic I am. And the more I travel, I remember when I went to Mumbai, I came back from Mumbai, I wanted to get on the ground and kiss the, the American floor. I am so grateful to be an American. But we have to be Christian first. We have to be Christian Americans. See, here's, here's a little bit about, for both of you who will care about this, a, a little bit about um, the a history of world missions. Uh, one of the critiques of early missions, American missions, was Americans, and they meant well. But Americans, they would go to India, and they would go to China, and they would go anywhere. And they would try to make them Christian, but also make them Western. They would try to make them Christian, and then they would try to make them American. And it was later viewed as almost like a form of imperialism. And it was guys like Hudson Taylor and William Carey, these guys we love, who they dressed like the people and they said, I, did, I may have come from America, but I did not come to make you American. I came that you might be Christian. So we are not American Christians, we are Christian Americans. Secondly, a family. If you can get this in your bones and in your joints and in your marrow, it solves a thousand problems. The local church is a family. It's the number one way the Bible talks about the local church. We're just brothers and sisters, and the pastors are the dads, and that's it. And it starts to make sense. You're like, okay, then if we fight, we fight like family. We're going to fight. 
That's why you get in a community group. You're like, it's going to be hard, and they're going to annoy me. Annoy me. When I was young, my sister annoyed me. Now my sister in Christ annoys me. <laughs> but you're like, I'm not leaving. I'm part of the family. The third thing is temple, and that's very interesting. So Paul mixes metaphors. He'll often do this. Like, right? So it's a temple that grows? That doesn't make sense because he's trying to teach us a couple things. He's saying that we're a stone or, or a brick or a block in the temple, and that this temple continues to be built every time a new person comes to faith in Christ. And we're one temple, though we're black and white and rich and poor and Asian and American. He said, is one temple's coming together. The language of the temple is to be cemented together, to be brought together by Christ. And again, it's one of those things that's easy to talk about. Oh yeah, Jesus brings people together. But I want to give you an illustration that I think helps. And to do so, we got to talk about mayonnaise. Do you like mayonnaise? Some people don't like mayonnaise. I, I like just the right amount of mayonnaise on my sandwich. But here, here's the thing about mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is very interesting substance. I'm not a chemist, but what happens in mayonnaise is mayonnaise has things hanging out with one another and getting along that never get along in, uh, anywhere else, namely oil and water. So how do you get oil and water, which let's just say metaphorically, hate each other? Jew and Gentile, whatever it is. How do you get them to hang out together? Well, chemists found out there's something called an emulsifier. And in mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. It's almost as if the egg says to the water, water, listen, connect with me. <laughs> I know you don't like oil, but just hang out with me. And then the egg walks over to the oil and says, oil, connect with me. I know you don't like water, don't worry about that right now. And as they both connect to the egg, they connect to one another. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus Christ on the cross became the emulsifier for all peoples. And when you worship him and when he becomes preeminent and the priority in your life, you're going to be connected to him and you're going to look around and you're going to realize, I'm connected to people that in the past I didn't even like and I never thought I would be connected to. It's hard to love people who've hurt you. It's hard to love people who've done things to you in the past. I don't know if you ever heard of Henry Garrick. Henry Garrick was a Lutheran pastor who was also a chaplain in World War II. And imagine this, World War II is over and thank God for that and you go home. And you're glad to go home, even though you were an army chaplain and you know, you're, you're just glad to be home, you're glad the war's over. And then Henry Garrick, several years later, he's back in America and he gets a phone call See, Henry Garrick was very good at German. So he gets the phone call he was not expecting. Imagine getting this phone call. Henry, would you consider coming to the Nuremberg trials? If you don't know what the Nuremberg trials were, the Nuremberg trials were when they put on trial the 22 men who were under Hitler and responsible for the deaths of six million Jews. Imagine this phone call. <laughs> they said, Henry, these 22 men need a pastor would you come and minister to them? So then he has to go talk to his wife, and back then travel was not as easy as it is today, and he said, honey, for me to do this, I'm gonna have to be gone for 12 to 18 months. And I'm gonna to have to learn to love people that I hate. And I wonder if he thought something like this passage, but if I don't go, they're gonna be without hope. If I don't go, there's gonna be no word of God getting to them. And if I don't go, I don't know if they're ever going to be connected to another Christian, so he goes. 
if you read about it, the 22 men, they were afraid he was going to leave. They fell in love with him. And they wrote his wife a letter at one point and said, basically, please let him stay. Don't, don't, he means so much to us. Henry, by his own admission, says he led six of these men to Christ and ended up serving them communion right before their execution. If there were ever outsiders, it was those 22 men. But Henry Garrick decided, I don't want them to be without hope, without God, and without Christ. What does it look like for us as a church to pursue both vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation, to bring people near and to preach peace? Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Henry Garrick and his example. In reading about him, I, I, he, the trials end and he gets back on the plane and he, I think he heads back to Wisconsin. And the rest of his life falls in tears and probably no one even knows all that he did. Lord, there's a lot of pain in people's lives. Our, our, our lives are only as good as the relationships we're in. Lord, would you help us to see you, Jesus, as the emulsifier? That we would connect to you. And in doing so, we would look around and find ourselves connected to all different types of people. Lord, would we view ourselves as citizens of heaven, not just citizens of America? Lord, would, would we view ourselves as a family of brothers and sisters would we view ourselves as a temple that's continuing to be built up till that last great day? In Jesus' name.